Hey, good morning, you guys. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bible. Take it out if you have it with you. Um, we're going to get there in a second, but I really do want to encourage you to join us at the park tomorrow. It is, it is a fun day. My wife, Sherry, always tells people this is Anthem at its best. Uh, like This is just a fun moment where we're together as families celebrating what God has done to us and how he's working through us and kind of the... Um, the opportunity we get to have to have reach into the far parts of the world, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Matt mentioned this last week, but there may be two groups of people in, in the room as we talk about generosity. And, and for some of you in the room, maybe the whole generosity thing is a little bit like old hat, like you've heard it year after year after year, like, okay, Matt, Bert, let's move on, let's move on. And, and this is really one of those areas as a church that God has given to us that is vital, that is important. And, and the encouragement to you if you've been hearing us talk about generosity year after year is to don't let that familiarity allow you to check out. But to actually like wonder what God may be up to this year and the story that he's called you into. But for some of you guys in the room, you guys are new to Anthem, and this is maybe even a new story for you. And, and in particularly, um, I don't know what your, your church background is, but if you come from a different church, chances are there's a little bit of baggage that comes with that. And sometimes that baggage is wrapped up in money and, and how the church handles money. And I just want to acknowledge maybe some of the skepticism that's in the room as we talk about generosity and, and also why Celebrate Generosity is one of my favorite moments as a church because we just keep nothing. We give it all away. We get to fund all these incredible church plants, these ministries here in Thousand Oaks and abroad. And it is an opportunity to like just send money out as a church community. And so if you do have maybe some history, some baggage, some maybe concern around what a church does with money, this is actually a great invite in because – we're not keeping anything. We're sending it out, and we're sending it out into different parts of the world. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But the other elephant in the room I want to address with generosity is oftentimes we think about generosity like transactionally. Uh, maybe we think, okay, I have money. They need money, and if they tell me to give money, I might consider giving money. And it's just sort of this exchange of goods. And what I want to argue for today and what I want to take you through scripture with today is that actually that generosity throughout the scripture is far less about being transactional and it is more about reflecting something or someone. I want us to see it as a like a natural fruit of a life filled with God's presence and God's own character in and through us. And so my task today is to trace through some of the Bible how generosity is actually a part of God's character and how because God made us to be like him, it's a part of our character. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he calls us to be like him. And so generosity is actually a base part of our own discipleship. And so like Mac mentioned a little bit earlier, it's, it's less about these amazing things we give to, which they are incredible and it's easy to get excited about these things. It's actually like a, like a worshipful, obedient kind of response to not just even what we were called to, but who you are at your very core, who you were made to be. And so we're going to discover that together, starting in Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bible, open there and just put your thumb there. But since the beginning of time, the beginning of everything, humanity has been confronted with this lie. And it's the lie that says, what God has given you isn't enough. And because it's not enough, go and take something for yourself. This is the story of Genesis chapter 3. We'll get to momentarily. 
But that lie runs in stark contrast to the abundance posture of God as he's creating everything, as he's this generous host, this giver of life. In the context of God being generous and abundantly giving everything to us, these lies creep into our head that goes, God really isn't that generous. Or there's not enough to go around, so I have to go out and get mine. I was thinking about this a lot this week and thinking about that moment back in March 2020 where we all became psychos with toilet paper. You guys remember that? The beginning of COVID? Now, who remembers what toilet paper has to do with COVID? Anything? Was there any correlation? No, not at all. But we went into panic mode and we're like, I'm going to go to Costco and clear them out just in case. I think we knew nothing about COVID at that point, but I'm pretty sure toilet paper had nothing to do with it. We just went into panic mode. We went into panic mode, which sent us as a culture into hoarding mode. And we go like, I don't know what's coming. I don't know what the future looks like. I don't know anything about what this next few weeks, remember two weeks to stop the spread. I don't know what those two weeks are gonna be like, but we're gonna, we're gonna hoard that toilet paper. We're gonna take it. We're gonna keep it for ourselves. And it's a silly moment now. It felt very real then because we actually ran out of toilet paper. We're like banging on Sherry's parents' doors like, do you have any extra? And of course they had lots of extra. They were one of those people at Costco buying pallets of them. But it's just a funny moment now in my mind as I think back about it. It's like this moment where stuff that felt important to us started to get threatened. And then some of our posture came out. That hoarding posture, that scarcity mindset of there's not enough to go around, so I have to go get mine. But the Bible consistently provides a counter-narrative to that lie. And it emphasizes that the life we truly desire actually comes from giving and not getting. Jesus even said in Acts chapter 20, it's, it's much better to give than receive. And in the Bible, generosity is this rebellious act against our culture, and a radical commitment to God's own culture and character. So you think about celebrate generosity next week. Think about it as like a radical rebellion against this world, a radical counter-narrative that we are buying into as a church community. And by it, by generosity, we say no to the scarcity mindset that says there isn't enough to go around, and yes, to Jesus, who says, we are enough and we have enough. Now, that all sounds good, but how do we actually live into that and not give into that ancient life what God has given isn't enough and live by the eternal truth that God is generous and has abundantly given all that we need? And to answer that, I want to start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, which you've been eagerly waiting for me to actually get to this whole time. So Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, creation is presented as this safe place for humanity. It's this place where humanity is welcomed in by a generous host. And even some of the descriptors in how and what God created is, is it's lavish. It's abundant. There's a lot going on here. Have you ever been to like a friend's house, like, a, like at a well-hosted party? Like not just like a, we're going to come watch a movie, but like food was thought out. The decoration was on point, like the right combination of people were there for like maybe some meaningful conversation. And you just almost, you're almost stunned by it. You walk in and you go like, the host was really thoughtful about what this is like. The host was really thoughtful about my experience. There's loads of food. 
There's the right people in the room. There's, there's good drinks. There's good atmospheres, good decoration. You just go like, there's something incredible about that. And it's, and it's one of those feelings that not just makes you like warm and cozy and feel like this is a place you want to be, but it actually kind of takes your mind back to the host and going, they were actually really thoughtful about this. They really cared about my experience. And, and in the same way, we get a bit of that picture in Genesis 1 and 2. God is on about creating stuff from nothing. He's going on and harnessing chaos into a beautiful garden, welcomes humanity in, and gives them a gift. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 present these two complementary uh, creation accounts that confirm the same truth. The creation is an expression of this generous, creative love of God. In chapter 1, God brings order out of chaos and blesses humanity. And in chapter 2, this section of the narrative we see there is God creates a garden out of wilderness and gives it as a gift to humanity. But we're not just guests in the garden. We're actually given purpose and mission. We're co-stewards. We're partners with God in harnessing this creation. And we're welcomed into ruling partnership with God himself. And what we discover in Genesis 1 and 2 is that we're made to be like God so we can join him in his work. So look at this snapshot in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As we see this, we're made to be like God. We're different from the rest of creation. Right? This account is not set of different types of birds or rhinoceroses or trees that are made in the image of God, but humans. So there's distinctness here. But also, if we keep going in these verses, we're seeing we're not just made like God to just hang out. We're made to be like God so we can join him in his work of ruling and creation. Look at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. It's a beautiful picture of the world we find in the Bible at the very beginning. The creation is this expression of God's generosity and his abundant love. That God is the host and he welcomes humanity in as his guests and his partners in this new creation. And because we're made in his image, God says, in essence, keep the party going. I started this thing. You're to go on forward reflecting me and doing the things that I did. Keep going. There's a Bible scholar up in Portland, uh, wizard behind the Bible project, if you've seen any of those pictures, Tim Mackey, and he says this, quote, The overabundance seen in nature comes from a creator that shows the same generosity towards us. And this mindset frees us 
from the fear of releasing resources to others. Now this sounds really good, but then we have to ask, why didn't it stay that way? Genesis 1 and 2 read like a pretty amazing picture of humanity and creation and the earth. But what happened? And it comes back to the age-old question, will we actually trust God? If we flip the page and head over to Genesis chapter 3, we see the biblical portrait of evil begins with this act of desiring and taking what is not rightfully theirs. Because Adam and Eve believed this lie. What God has given isn't enough. Look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Have you ever wondered, like reading through the Bible and you're like, Genesis 1 and 2 sound great. And you get to Genesis 3 verse 1 you're like, wait a second, where did the snake come from? Like there's a lot of unanswered questions here. It's okay to just say that. We get to Genesis chapter 3 and we're like, oh, this is a sea change. There's a snake crawling around and he's crafty than anything else. The story is about to turn. And he said to the woman, the snake talks, by the way, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, this is a interesting question because it reveals what the serpent is doing is suddenly undermining God's generosity with a half-truth. It's not a total lie. Did you guys catch that? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God actually said? It's not a trick question. No, that's not what God actually said. But he introduces this half-truth. Okay, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any tree of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of life that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good. That's what God actually said. Ooh, but she keeps going. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Right, she added something in that was not there. But the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Half truth leads to truth plus a little bit more. Leads to the serpent portraying God as holding out on humanity. Withholding something good. Withholding knowledge. Gets her with the half-truth. She responds, and he goes, Oh, okay, okay, sure. But don't you want to be like God? What's he holding out on you? Aren't you missing something? Isn't there something missing from all of this? Verse 6, So then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That word desire has layers of like covetousness under it. It's something that wasn't theirs. She took of it, of the fruit, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Whoops, that's a searing indictment. He was just standing around this whole time. And he ate, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And this right here, Genesis chapter 3, where the whole story starts to unravel a little bit, we get a textbook example of a scarcity mindset. And it goes something like this. Well, God's not actually generous. Or if he is, he's holding back 
he's holding on, uh, out on you. There's something he's keeping from you. And because he's keeping something from us, we can't trust him. So because we can't trust God to give us what we need, I will see and take what I want. And it's the same sin framework we see through the unfolding chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain sees Abel's favor and takes a life. In Genesis chapter 6, the sons of Elohim see wives and take them for themselves. And in Genesis chapter 11, the whole Tower of Babel stuff, they see the heavens and want to take a great name for themselves. And it's this framework that happens throughout the Old Testament and continues even into the New Testament. God is not actually generous, but if he is, he's holding back something. And because he's holding back something, I can't trust him. Because I can't trust him to give me what I need, I will see and take what I want. How often does that framework get lived out in our lives on a daily basis? Like without even trying. But notice how the serpent, Satan, uses scarcity as a tactic here. Scarcity makes us afraid. It makes us selfish. It makes us anxious. It makes us hoarders. Remember the toilet paper, right? It makes us go out and grab things to take care of ourselves. It makes us fearful of anyone else who might encroach on what is mine. How do you react when what's yours gets threatened? Some of the ugliest acts of violence and atrocities and politics and war is rooted in this, I have to take what's mine posture. I have to go out and get what's mine. I have to protect what's mine. So you might ask why we make such a big deal about generosity here at Anthem. And based on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it seems as if generosity and abundance and greed and scarcity are at play from day one and have ripple effects into our lives. So we're left at Genesis 3 going, okay, the story started out good. It took a turn for the worst. The wheels really came off the train on this one. What is God going to do about all this? And God's plan is to offer a new gift. To offer this new human, Jesus, who opens the way to a new creation. And throughout the lead up to Jesus incarnate, we see God as this generous creator who consistently gives people what they don't deserve. So creation is fundamentally flawed and corrupted when people desire what isn't theirs and take it instead of imitating the creator's generous sharing strategy here. But God's response is to continue giving until humans begin to give like God. And so because of his character and his commitment to us, God establishes these outposts of generosity throughout the Bible. I'm going to name a couple, but you can go and find them all over Scripture. Starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God calls a person that will become a family and makes them an outpost of his generosity here on earth. In Genesis chapter 12, we see the Abraham-God encounter go like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and leave your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he goes on 
to give Abram three promises. God wants humans to experience his generosity. So he starts with one family. He starts with the family of Abraham and promises to give them abundance that he wants for everyone else. And part of this outpost of God's generosity, God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a great nation and your reputation will be great. And I will give you land, which is a really tangible uh, part of this gift. I will, I will give you a land, the promised land. And thirdly, from you will come a blessing for the whole world. God's ongoing generosity at play. And we get these shreds of what is God up to here with this man, Abraham. Now, Abraham begats and begats and begats, and there's a whole family. And they find themselves as a nation, the fulfillment of God's promise, the Israelites. And they were supposed to carry on the same posture of being blessed to be a blessing, an outpost of God's generosity and I say supposed to because they failed miserably at it. But let's take a look at Exodus chapter 19 when it was still going sort of okay. So in Exodus 19 verse 5, God says to Moses, Now therefore, if you will indeed my, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now look at that to and through relationship. God's saying, I will make you my treasured possessions, and you will be a kingdom of priests, being like me and modeling who I am to the rest of the world. I will be abundant and generous with you, and I have that same expectation. You will do that with other nations. Now this went horribly wrong almost immediately for hundreds of years. And Israel finally entered the land of abundance and promptly forgot who gave it to them. They act like it's all theirs and there's not enough, which leads to their inevitable destruction, self-destruction, exile, and war with other nations. And we just sort of see the spiral going on and on of God continually wanting to lavish his abundant love and generosity on people who take it and twist it and warp it until finally Jesus enters on the scene. God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, John 1 tells us embodying the very generosity of God. And we see, as the Father is describing his great love for us, his great love is manifest in his son, Jesus. John 3, 16. For God so loved, he gave. For God so loved this world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, what, the, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The fundamental depiction of God throughout the Bible is of a generous gift giver whose generosity transforms our very lives. So what is this Jesus, this God incarnate, embodying the very generosity of God, what does he go on to say about the Father? What does he go on to say about this idea of abundance and generosity? If you flip over to Luke 12 with me, we have this snapshot of Jesus letting us in on the Father's heart and teaching us what it means to live according to his kingdom. He teaches us to believe the truth about God's abundance and reject the lie of scarcity. And he says that has implications for how you and I live. And in Luke chapter 12, verses 22, Jesus says to his disciples, 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, which you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So this is a key right here. Jesus links some things together. Jesus links a scarcity mindset. God's not generous. But if he actually is, he's holding back on me. And because I can't trust him, I have to take what's mine. He he links this idea of worrying about food and clothing to anxiety. Remember those fear tactics that Satan used with scarcity? Scarcity makes us fearful, selfish, hoarding, anxious, worried. When we're worried about what's mine, we get anxious. Jesus links these things together. And he links this abundance mindset to God's very own posture of generosity and hospitality towards us. Because in the very chapter before, in Luke chapter 11, he gives this revealer of the Father's heart. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, Will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those ask to those who ask of him? When the story is recounted in Matthew chapter seven, Matthew records it as how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? This is the heart of the Father towards us. So Jesus is linking the scarcity mindset with anxiety, but a generosity, like abundance mindset with God's very own generosity. Not your own. He's linking it to the Father's generosity. So the heart of this whole generosity thing is who do you believe God to be? Do you believe God to be a generous father who gives good gifts? Or like a stingy hoarder who's holding out on? And besides this, says Jesus, life is more than the basics of food and clothing. So Jesus kind of looks around at nature. He looks around at creation and says, look at how God has created this world. Look at the ravens. Look at the lilies. Look at how God is taking care of them. What he's doing is articulating a way of seeing the world that's rooted back in Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus knows the scripture. And he's saying, look at God's own creation, how he feeds them, how he clothes them. Check this out in verse 22. Consider the ravens, he says. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Birds are not made in God's image. Humans are made in God's image. You are way more valuable to God than ravens. And look at how God takes care of them. How much more will he take care of you? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus says, consider the ravens. God's feeding them. The lilies, God's clothing them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? Yes, absolutely. 
Jesus' view of creation is that God created a good world that produces enough. In verse 29, he goes on, Do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He says, don't run after the same things everyone else is running after. Don't be so preoccupied with getting that you miss out on God's giving. Don't seek after food and clothing, and don't be worried about them. Jesus is inviting us to think about our world differently, to obtain an upside-down view of how we think about money, stuff, and resources. He's saying everyone's chasing after status, bigger bank accounts, more money. Don't be like that. Don't worry about it. Why don't we have to worry? Because the Father knows that we need those things. He knows that we need money to pay rent. He knows that we need food and clothing. He knows that we have obligations to meet. Jesus is inviting us to rearrange our priorities, to trust God with the small potatoes and join him in his work, in his kingdom. Verse 31, instead, Jesus presents the alternative. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If you step yourself into this this God reality, this God initiative, God provisions, then you'll find your everyday human concerns are met. Why? Because it's your Father's good pleasure to give. He reminds us that our Father is the one who actually has our best interests at heart. And when we so often believe the lie of there's not enough to go around, I have to take mine, Jesus reminds us as he's talking to his disciples in John 10 that I have come to give you life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life, life abundant. So, in verse 33, Jesus says, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This is a bit of a callback to the rich young ruler uh, story, where the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, I've, I've done all the good things, what else do I have to do? And Jesus says, Sell it all. Give all your stuff, all your money to the poor, and come follow me. And he walks away sad. Because he has great possessions. What Jesus is saying is don't get so weighed down by your stuff of this world that you're no use in the kingdom. Don't put your resources in a place with temporary value. Put them in a place with eternal value. And he ends with this piercing statement. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is one of those statements, I don't know about you, if you come across these lines in the Bible, that just haunt me. Today's the first. It's rent day, my friends. I got the email notification this morning that my rent went out. It's a big check. Okay, I need to trust you with this one, Lord. When I'm thinking about generosity, and I'm getting all excited about these places we're giving, and then all of my very natural human concerns start to kick in, and I start to scale back. I remember this line from Jesus. There's a few really brilliant people who commented on this one verse. Randy Alcorn, no relation. Randy Alcorn says, what we do with our money boldly affirms what kingdom we belong to. And Eugene Peterson, as he translates this verse for the message, says, it's obvious, isn't it? 
the place where your treasure is, is the place where you will most want to be and end up being. This is both like a diagnostic and directional statement from Jesus. It's diagnostic. It tells us where our heart is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to know where your heart is, Jesus says, look at where your treasure is. So for some of you, that might be thinking through your calendar, your bank account, your credit card statement, going, what's most important to me? But it's also directional. He says, Jesus says, where do you want your heart to be? There's a simple way to get there. Just put your money there. Put your treasure there. Put your possessions there. That's some of the reasons why we do celebrate generosity. You go out on the patio and you talk to Mark and Marcy at the Touch Nepal table. Like, man, I, I want to be excited about what's happening in Nepal. And Jesus says, cool, there's a way you can do that. Put your treasure there. Join Mark on a trip out there. Start giving to them. And your heart follows. If you're a parent in the room, you know, you know this to be true. Whether we like it or not, we have to provide food and clothing for our children and stuff like that. And so, uh, but there's this funny thing. Kids are really expensive, right? There's this funny thing. The more you spend on your kids and as you raise them, your heart is all wrapped up in them. And it's not just because you're, you know, altruistically a good person who just loves your children. It's you're invested. That is where you're invested. You're investing your time, your money, your resources. You're investing your whole selves into helping them grow up into mature Jesus-loving people. Jesus is saying, you want your heart to be in a certain place, invest in that place. And your heart actually follows your wallet. This is a profound invitation from Jesus. And this invitation becomes clear into the picture. It says, don't worry about food, don't worry about clothing, about getting ahead, about status, about being, be concerned with the Father's kingdom. He'll take care of you. Be concerned with the Father's kingdom because I want your heart all wrapped up in the Father's kingdom. And this sounds suspiciously like somebody. Jesus is describing a certain kind of person. And if you start to unpack, like, who is the person who did that perfectly? What's the answer? Jesus. Jesus, right here in this passage, is teaching us what it's like to become like him. Matt mentioned last week, do you ever wonder how Jesus got around, ate food, slept in places, traveled? I, I don't really see Jesus concerned with meeting his travel budget. I, saw, I see him concerned with joining the Father in his kingdom and doing the Father's will, and resources were provided. This is not an excuse for living unwisely, but it is an invitation to rearrange some priorities. Jesus is teaching us what it means to become like him. And it's to know from the beginning that creation is an expression of the generous, creative love of God. And as humans, we're called to join him because we're made like him. And so he creates this, this epic party, if you will, in creation. And he says, okay, your job is to keep the party going. Keep on keeping on. Be like me. It goes horribly wrong. And then we find ourselves in a world of scarcity and struggle. And the biblical portrait of evil begins with this act, desire to take what is not mine because I don't trust God. And we see throughout the story of the Bible that God continually combats the scarcity mindset through his generosity and love towards humanity, culminating in the person and the work of Jesus. The host himself comes to join the party. And what we see is that Jesus' death 
and resurrection was the ultimate expression of God's abundant love for you and me. It's a love that can turn death into life and scarcity back into abundance. So much like Abraham and the Israelites, we're invited into the story. Only we're on this side of the cross and resurrection. So we now have the Spirit compelling us, equipping us, empowering us to actually be like Jesus. To see God as abundantly generous, ready to give good gifts, and to be like Him in a world full of scarcity and struggle. I want to land and end with this one passage that is just, uh, you're not supposed to have favorites in the Bible. But if we were allowed to have favorites, this would be up there for me. Galatians 2.20. Now, Paul spends a lot of time yelling at the Galatians about stuff, but then he has this, like, profound moment in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I've had this encounter with Jesus. And it's only because of the finished work and the risen Jesus. So it's not just me anymore that's living. It's not just my ego, my desires, my well-being. It's Christ in me. He's making me a new person from the inside out. And so the life I now live, I don't live by the world's ways. I live in this upside-down kingdom now, filled with the Spirit pursuing God's will. I live this life empowered by the Spirit, by faith in Jesus, sent by the Father, who loved me and gave himself for me. The ultimate picture of generosity we have in the scriptures is God sending his son for you and for me. And that same son who gets sent says, come and be like me. Trusting a generous God, trusting in God's good world, there's enough. Trusting that as we reverse our priorities to seek first his kingdom, we're going to trust the Father who will take care of us. So as we talk about generosity, it's not guilt, it's not shame, it's even not like compulsion. It's just recognizing the generosity of God himself. And recognizing this high calling that in our very being, you were made to be like him. A generous, gift-giving, abundant father. This is the purest expression of trust that God is a generous host, is when we act like him in this world. Let's pray together. Fathers, we consider responding today, responding and singing and all the different ways that we respond. So we're thinking about this passage. So we're thinking about your generosity story. As we're thinking about your very character and nature, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would highlight right now to us your generosity in saving us and bringing us to your family. I feel, uh, God, I ask that you'd remind us of your abundant love towards us. Would you just bring to our mind, even in these moments, how you provided for us and cared for us, tended to us. As we consider what leaving this place today Entering into next week, considering this invita invitation of generosity, I do pray that you protect us from any sort of feeling of guilt or shame or shoulds, but you would just bring our attention over and over again back to your generosity 
and remind us of our identity, made in your image, called to be like you, to a watching world, trapped by scarcity, anxiety, and struggle. So we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.